Launching One Fine Stay in New York was insane. It struck us that this was a big idea that nobody was really thinking about right at the time when, um, again, brands were being built online, you know, distribution was easier than ever. This was an incredible journey by, by any definition, by any stretch. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today's podcast is extra special for me. Uh, and the reason why, and we, we didn't even plan for this. It, the reason why is because Evan's been a super catalyst in my life. Um, I, I didn't even tell him I was going to share this on, on air and, and with other people. So I just figured it would be impromptu in a way that would elicit the actual honest and very on point reaction from you, Evan. So thank you for early days in my career. You were the person who introduced me to key people in my uh, in my career. I think you helped me connect with uh, with Sitar and a few other of my previous colleagues. And it was because of you that, you know, to some way I have to thank for a lot of the things that have happened in my life. So thank you, Evan. Gosh, well, <clears throat> Carlos, more than more than happy to, of course. And I'm so I'm so pleased uh, seeing everything that you've done with that start and all the great work at Seed Camp. And there's a funny story about Seed Camp as well, because I started my career working with Reshma in New York. I'm not sure if you knew that or if at Reshma. A bank. So, at, at a, yeah, at a bank, exactly. So tell the story. So, so part of what we like to do in the podcast, um, yeah. because I put you on the spot and I didn't tell you what we were going to do, now's the time I'm going to walk you through kind of what the plan is. So the plan is, yeah, uh, I would love to hear your background story. Yeah. Or, you know, because you went from... Uh, finance to you know more finance, and then you went into uh, being an operator, and then now you're going back into a form of like operating finance and advice. So maybe yeah. tell, tell the audience your story. Let's just start from from day one. You grad. What did you study in school? What What was your first job? So I was. I went to the University of Michigan. Um, I'm from New York originally. Uh, my first job was supposed to be uh, starting at uh, at Broadview which was, uh, and, and sort of still is in name, um, a tech M&A boutique that saw tremendous growth uh, of their business in the late 90s. And I was hired during boom times. Um, there was such swagger uh, in 2000 uh, when, I was, when I was given an offer. By the time that it was actually my time to join, it was like full bust cycle. And I was deferred for a year. So it's like, I didn't even know what I was going to do right out of school. And that's how I know Reshma. So, so one of the alum from, from Broadview uh, started an M&A boutique called Innovation Advisors in New York. So I helped set that up for a year. I then joined uh, Broadview uh, in New York, sort of as per the plan uh, for a few years. Um, and then <clears throat> I think like a lot of bankers who work in tech and work in M&A, you know, you really, you really look at the buy side and think, you know, those, those guys are having more fun and I think I could do that. So I managed to get a, a job working in growth equity, but also in London. So it's a job that took me from New York to London. Uh, that was in 05 uh, for a firm that's gone on to do great things called, called Kennett, um, Kennett Partners, which is a sort of a premier uh, mid-market 
sort of small small market, I guess, by PE terms. Yep. Um, growth equity fund um, in London. Um, learned a tremendous amount uh, about investing um, and about kind of board level interaction, uh, deal sourcing. It was scrappy in the in the in the beginning, um, but turned thirty and at that point decided that. You know, I'm, I am having more fun, but you know who's having even more fun? It's the entrepreneurs. It's the builders. Uh, so decided that um, at that point in my life, I would try to start a company and, and kind of build companies and see what happened. Um, I was very fortunate uh, to have known Greg Marsh. Oh, you uh, skipped the story. You skipped it. I was what did I skip? Box. Oh, wow. You're, we're going to the box days. So I was. Oh, yes, so, you have to tell I, that story. And then I'll okay. tell my funny story on the tail end of that story. Please, that would be great. So, okay, so 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 box was really fun. Um, box. So so when I was at, when I was like finishing up at Kennett, uh, Andy Dunn from Bonobos came in to pitch, and this was like pre Warby, right? This was like the early days of D 2 C um, e commerce, and. I thought about sort of vertically integrated manufacturing and what the opportunities may be there. So, so yes. Yeah, so, so the job that I first left uh, the VC world for was to start a D 2 C underwear, shirts, and socks brand uh, called Box. And of course, um, you know, distribution, online distribution, worked very differently back then. Uh, so my main means of distribution was being a street trader on Portobello Road. So got like licensed and was like, you know, hawking underwear uh, on 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 the sat- at the Saturday market. Um, so yeah, so so I did do that for a while, and I'm still wearing box underwear and undershirts to this day. It's the kind of thing like two guys on a podcast can probably confess publicly, you know, like because that company and the products is now like over a decade old, right? But it's like if it- if it's good, you keep it, right? Oh man, I could. I, I was like one of your biggest customers. Like I had so much box stuff, and then when you said you were going to kill it, I was like, no, it was the best stuff ever. Yeah, thank you. I I, I am very proud of the product. <clears throat> it's withstood the test of time, right? I'm like I'm wearing it today. You're wearing it. thank. So thank you. I um, I actually tried at one point. Uh, to kind of reboot the manufacturing uh, in in northern Portugal, that's where we were. That's where we we're making the stuff outside of Porto. Um, but you know, couldn't couldn't figure out how to get it off the ground again. Yeah, but um, that was obviously right at the end of that is when you and Greg paired up. Yeah. So so I was subletting a desk from the original One Fine Stay office from Greg, who was a friend mm-hmm. um, and, a, and a and a buddy. So he was at Index and I was at Kennett. We would kind of do the do 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 the lunch and kind of networking scene together pretty regularly. So we're, deals. we're gonna do a commercial break right now. And the commercial break is for your business. Now the reason why I'm doing this is because what I want to do is I want to have you tell us, tell the audience what it is that you're doing now at this junction in between oh, yeah. the box story and the one fine stay story. And the reason why is because I want you then after you've shared what it is that you're doing, what you learned that at one point, say you would have applied to Box that would have might have potentially made it successful. Okay, great. So what I am now doing is building um, building like a support business, a content and services uh, company 
um, to support growth companies mm. on their growth company journeys, mm. really centered around and kind of starting with uh, goal setting, uh, namely OKRs, yeah. um, which is something that I've been uh, iterating on myself for over 25, 30 cycles. I probably participated in um, and driven um, you know, 50 planning cycles over the past decade. Um, so, 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 so I think there's a real opportunity uh, right now to help uh, with a lot of the knowledge that has been quite like hard earned, I'd say, like the hard yards of, of, of building these, 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 these startups um, that can then be applied and, 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 and really assist the next generation of growth companies. Excellent. And we're going to go back into that in a little bit more detail because I, I, I want to explore where companies get these things wrong. So now with that wisdom, yeah. let's resume the box story. If you could give yourself advice with everything you've learned now, and and you're now in this consultancy, and you're meeting young yeah. Evan Frank, and you're like, mate, this is what you got to do. What would you say? Yeah. Well, I would, I mean, the first thing is I wouldn't try to do it entirely alone. Um, I think the growth company journey, um, the good growth company journeys are very emotional, they're very difficult, and they're very long. Um, so I think there's a different um, time horizon that I think is important to bear in mind and realizing that you need support kind of throughout the whole thing. And I think one of the best forms of support, although not everybody uh, chooses to do this, is having like full-time co-founders um, and, and, and others that you can kind of share that journey with and support each other when, when, when the times get tough, which is ultimately why I chose to sunset box. I didn't have a full-time co-founder and Greg invited me into a full-time co-founding team. So, so it's, you know, it's ultimately choosing, choosing partners and thinking about that at the foundational level. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also, it is about even at that, uh, level of maturity, it is about setting goals that are realistic goals and then putting action plans kind of behind those behind those goals that really set clear expectations for yourself, for your company on what can be achieved that's sufficiently stretchy, but ultimately uh, would still be successful in a in a sort of a in, in sort of a, a fixed time horizon. Um, so I think if I had to think about the box days, uh, it would probably be that. I think if I had stuck with Box, and this was really why I joined One Fine Stay, I think I could have made Box successful. Um, but the risk, if it wasn't successful, was that I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I learned from working with Greg, Demetrius, and Tim, and getting One Fine Stay off the ground, and ultimately taking yeah. it to the U.S. and and we could we could talk about the rest of the story, but but sort of you know. Well, we're we're are just getting... we're about to jump into the One Fine Stay story. So okay. Um, for the listeners, a little bit more background, sort of coincidental background. Greg Marsh was one of the early, also a friend, um, one of the early supporters of Seed Camp. He was, from what I understand, um, Reshma gives him credit for setting up Gmail for us or something. <laughs> because our early days Seed Camp was, you know, like tons of people just kind of doing little bits and contributing. Um, yeah. I, I think I think Greg helped with some of the early systems and setting them up. But um, okay. But yeah, so just funny anecdote. But you know, you guys paired up, and and I had known Greg yeah. for a long time, uh, even before Seed Camp. So it was it was great to see when that came together, and then of course what he was building. So tell us the one fine stay story from your point of view. So I had 
a breakfast with Greg um, in, in like 08 or 09 uh, in Mayfair somewhere um, where he encouraged me to, uh, to, to ultimately leave the four-star hotel that felt like our VC jobs at the time um, and really focus on building something. And of course, that originally was Box. Um, I had given notice on my space uh, that was subletted from Greg, Tim, and Demetrius and the early One Fine State team uh, in Clarkenwell. Um, and that's when Greg uh, ultimately invited me to join uh, the founding team. So One Fine stay. I mean, we're, we're not, I don't think any of us are sort of hospitality junkies, um, but this was a big idea, right? It was a big idea um, whose time had come. Um, Airbnb was just coming out fast, and we we all know what how that story is continuing to evolve uh, out of uh, out of Y Combinator on the West Coast. Um, but we were trying to do something different. We were trying to create an entirely new category of accommodation, one that felt um, sort of halfway between uh, staying in a characterful city property um, and um, and uh, sort of an upscale an upscale hotel. Um, so, you know, this was, it, 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 it struck me and it struck us that this was a big idea that nobody was really thinking about right at the time when, um, again, brands were being built online, you know, distribution was easier than ever. Um, and we actually saw a lot of value in the logistics that we were building around the service experience. Um, so, you know, one fine stay, let's see. So we would now call it a seed. But well, we raised our Series A uh, in 2011 from Index. Uh, no, that was 2010 from Index. Um, and we really got going kind of building this out in London. It was like single single location, London build out. I was uh, responsible. I guess my title was head of commercial. I was responsible for the sales and marketing operations. Um, and that's both the supply side teams as well as the kind of the conversion demand teams. Um, and we were off to the races. I mean, it was a great growth story. We very quickly got to the point that we were ready from a capital and a management span perspective to really do what was always the intention, which was me moving back uh, to the U.S. and starting one fine stay, not only uh, in a second city, but in the U.S. region. So that happened after uh, another round of, of capital was infused by Canaan Partners on the, on the East Coast. Um, and I moved back uh, to New York, which is where I'm from originally, um, in, um, in January 2012. So about nine years ago now. Um, launching One Fine Stay in New York was insane. Um, uh, we, we, we can kind of go into the details, but at a high level, it's the most uh, uh, regulated real estate market in the world. We had to do our legal agreements completely differently. We had to have a totally different story and pitch while still maintaining kind of consistency of the brand and, um, and kind of, and consistency of culture kind of internally as well. Um, but we did launch uh, in May of that year, uh, got a New York Times feature on time and under budget, as I like to say at the time. And once again, we were, we were, we were kind of off to scale in New York. Um, about a year, a little over a year later, we expanded to LA, to the West Coast, and a lot of my time was spent growing um, and managing the U.S. business uh, for for One Fine Stay, which at exit was a little under fifty percent of our of our of our total group revenue. 
And I think um, there's, uh, there's to interrupt part of the story. This is also where uh, you also, we, we had a chat and it was roughly where I think you were joking at the time, maybe not entirely joking, but you were saying like, I spent half my time doing laundry and you walked me through, yes. uh, you, you walked me to this one place where you had all the operations aggregated. Uh, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, totally. I mean, we were we were a warehousing and logistics business as much as anything else. Um, in London, in the I mean, the reason why we literally started out in a garage in London was because the linen would get dropped off and we would have to <laughs> wheel it in, wheel it in and sort it and and put it into a warehouse. Um, and it was the same in New York. So we co-located and actually culturally, we made the decision to do that in the early days. Um, because we were building a culture that included uh, sort of the warehouse all the way through to, you know, kind of traditional startup uh, uh, technologists and, and, um, and marketers. Um, so, yeah, so, so there was a tremendous amount of logistical management and actually the logistics of the cities. I love cities, right? So, so London, quite sprawled, New York, quite dense. It implied a totally different logistical model. Um, that we continued to iterate and we had, you know, vans driving around and we were using Uber. The Uber infrastructure wasn't really in London in the early days. So no, it was, uh, it was like a, it was a distributed hotel. That's what we were building. Yeah. And it was, it was, I remember, I just remember that chat. You, you looked, you looked like you were like, oh my God, I don't know what I bit off when I took this. I mean, it was exciting, but you were like, yes, this is like the hardest thing ever. Um, what, what was, it was fun. You know, maybe uh, you mentioned that you guys sold it. I don't know how much you can share about that, but uh, maybe just to sort of put a bookend on the story, what, just maybe share what you can about the exit and, and the yeah. details there. So we had raised four rounds of capital, totaling about 80 million bucks from Index, Canaan, uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Sean at ProFounders. Yeah. Um, and, um, and Hyatt Hotels, which was kind of the first crossover deal uh, of its kind. Um, and we had decided to see what the market kind of had to, had to offer. This was in 2000 and early 2016. Um, uh, and the real decision for us at that point was, do we raise more capital or do we exit the business? Um, and we assessed those two opportunities and ultimately found a home uh, within a core that felt right for the business and right for the culture. So we sold the business for, you know, about 200 million bucks, which is kind of publicly available um, in, I think, April 2016, it was sort of official. Um, so that was when the exit happened. Um, quickly thereafter, Greg decided to move on. I stepped into the CEO seat um, and I stayed for another year. Mm. So if if that, that's the bookend from the moment you started, which was, on the basis that Greg had welcomed you to join him and to be co-founder and deal with the journey with somebody which you didn't have in box. And then at the very end is taking over the reins as CEO after you've sold the company. If you look at that entire period, how long was that in total? Uh, so it was six and a half years. Six and a half years. Maybe, maybe just share... A couple of of um, anecdotes of like the low lights. I, I think founders obviously go through a lot of journeys of of self discovery and also of of sacrifice. Yeah. And and maybe for those that are listening that are kind of going through one themselves, especially in twenty twenty, especially in hospitality. Um, yes. Maybe maybe there's some anecdotes there that are, that that you could share. 
Yes. So, so I, um, this was an incredible journey by, by any definition, by any stretch. It was also for me, an incredibly emotional journey. Um, uh, you know, the highs were really high. The lows were really low. Um, I like to joke to other people that I, I essentially became a Buddhist, uh, over, which, which is kind of half true, um, uh, over, over the journey just to be able to cope, uh, with the stress. Um, and I also used it personally as an opportunity to really, um, really get under the hood of a sort of CEO or founder level effectiveness. So read everything I could get my hands on. Um, uh, about, you know, kind of the, the art of, 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 and the craft of really scaling and, and how that works, uh, applied those insights, I guess, in real time in my own management. So, so when I was the CEO of One Fine Say, it was about a 500 person organization. I personally hired about a hundred people in the U S business, um, and managed, uh, that, that organization as well. Um, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a very, uh, it was a very exciting, but also very challenging time. I mean, I think like anecdote wise, I'm trying to think, um, I mean, it was, it was, it was really, it was really like, it was very real, right? Like it wasn't, it didn't feel like other tech businesses where, you know, everyone's got their headphones on, um, and they're building code. Um, it really felt like we were out there every day. Um, you know, we have stories of, you know, kind of losing VIP uh, homeowners like on a Friday night because, you know, some some kind of crisis happened and we had to build really build a hospitality culture around managing that um, and kind of withstanding that. So, you know, I think it uh, you know, I think it, it it was sort of it was really kind of an entire kind of real life cycle journey that we experienced almost every, every aspect of over the course of a pretty short period of time, six and a half years. But if you, if you pick in that six and a half years, like maybe a couple of stories where you're like, why the fuck am I doing this? And like, yeah. I mean, in, in your space, I mean, I'll give you an example of kind of what I expect an anecdote to be. Yeah. You're in the business of hosting locations that belong to people that trust you with their property, you must have had at least one where you walked in, it looked like Mick Jagger had a party there and you're like, holy yeah. shit. Any, yeah. Any, <laughs> yeah, I, that, that, that happens surprisingly frequently. <laughs> I mean, one, one of the things that I've definitely learned, um, uh, our, our London GM, a guy called Andy Small, who's now like the MD of, of house in the UK. Um, you know, taught me the expression, don't be gentle, it's a rental. So, you know, what we would find when a guest would leave and before the homeowner would come home and what we would ultimately have to transform, but also kind of document that transformation in case there was any damage that we didn't spot was, was pretty extraordinary. So, yes. So, so, so I think, you know, when we, when we really had our most challenging times, it was when our valuable homeowners. And of course, we believed in what we were selling, right? So when we welcomed a new host onto our platform, um, it was because we believed that they would be part of our community. They would find that valuable. They would find the hassle-free income valuable. And when we couldn't deliver on that promise, that was, of course, very emotionally challenging and difficult for us. And again, one that we built an entire hospitality culture around. Um, 
So yeah, so there was one time uh, with a sort of quite quite sort of posh English guy um, um, whose home I had signed up in Knightsbridge. Uh, we didn't have a lot of homes in Knightsbridge, and there was a lot of consumer demand for Knightsbridge, so we were pretty psyched about that. Um, and we got almost like the most frantic phone call imaginable uh, about the state. He had just come home. We had we we called it deep provisioning and deprovisioning. That was the language that we used for the setup and the takedown. Um, that his home was, I think it was it was it was a tip was the, the British expression that he used, or in a tip. Can can you uh, translate that for me? In a tip, or it's a tip. Yeah, some like that. I, you know what? Okay. I've heard it before, but I don't use it very often. Okay. Yeah. Me, me, me neither. I'll have to um, ask Harry. I'll have to ask Harry. Totally. So, 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 you know, we, what would typically happen in those days, and this happened all the time, is the founders would rush out. Like, like it was escalated, and I was there, and Demetrius, our COO, was there, um, really sitting down, and, and, and you realize how much of people's identity is really wrapped up in the order of their homes and, you know, and, and, and how really, you know, there's elements outside of your control, but there's expectations around service promise that we have to make sure that we're delivering. Um, so, so that was a particularly noteworthy uh, example of essentially, we called it a deprov failure, where we it wasn't that big a deal uh, in, in some respects, but when you have customers with high expectations, and a service promise that uh, with expectations that were sort of set at a high level, this is the kind of business that you're in, and you have to be exceptionally good at it. You have to build your own resilience around it, and build and build the right culture of understanding around it. Yeah, I mean, if if you don't, right, then you're not delivering on the brand promise, and so you have to you have to help every single one of your employees understand what that brand promise means, even down to the person who's deprovisioning a, a space. But I wanted to explore that idea a little bit further because you probably were, you know, there's not that many startups that have as broad a range of employees yes. as you did, you know, and yeah. If you look at a lot of the sort of let's say it's a, let's say it's a dev tool company, right? Like dev tool companies probably hire mostly other engineers, and and culturally there's a lot more. You probably went to the same schools. You might all know yes. the same stuff, read the same books. But with one fine stay, you had such a broad range of employees, everything from marketing to real estate people to people who were helping with provisioning, deprovisioning. You had you know obviously the the, the tech team and everything. Walk us through what what it was like building a company with that. Well, I think it was really about. Um, continuing to maintain an aligned culture and a culture of uh, empathy uh, for all areas of the organization um, and respect. Uh, so we um, we at One Fine Stay in New York would host pretty regular book clubs where everybody was invited. Um, the interview process followed a pretty high level of consistency for culture fit. Um, ultimately, we were looking for people who were uh, for who, who were ambitious, but ultimately, uh, ultimately felt quite passionate about the mission. So they would typically have, regardless of whether it was a warehouse or an engineer, um, some hospitality uh, uh, experience or hotel experience, working in a hotel or staying in a hotel, that they thought to themselves, "I think there's a way to make this better. I think there's a way to make this feel more authentic." Um, and that was really a common um, sort of a common thread throughout our hiring practice. Um, 
And of course, you know, it's a startup. So we're looking for people who wanted to come in and work hard and align and fulfill a mission. Um, so that mission orientation is often quite personal. And we never really turned a blind eye to it in our own recruiting process and our own management process. We, and this is really informing a lot of the work that I'm beginning to do now. Um, we placed a lot of emphasis on organizational structure, on organizational communication. I learned a tremendous amount from, from Greg and Demetrius in this respect. Um, it was about transparency. Uh, it was about ultimately communicating goals um, and then coming back to the team and articulating whether we delivered those goals, whether we didn't. Everybody was invited to our all hands, right? Um, everybody was reading, hopefully, or they were uh, allowed to read uh, all of the organizational communication, which we really over-invested in. We really over-communicated as a company and over-invested our own time in figuring out the right organizational structures so that everybody felt included and part of a common culture, despite a, a sort of a diversity of, uh, of, of, of employee type and a real um, distributed environment that we were operating in. So I was in New York, we had an LA operation, we had a Paris operation, London was our HQ. Uh, eventually we had Miami and Rome as well. Um, so keeping all of that stuff um, aligned was like the daily challenge of scaling that business. If you, if you look back at the wisdom that you had, and I'm using the word wisdom in quotes, as an investor, and then if you revisited the advice or the thoughts that you had about being an entrepreneur after now having done two companies, Box and One Fine Stay, what are the things that you reckon investors get most wrong about the entrepreneurial journey? I, I would say how hard it is to get things done, right? So I remember uh, my time sitting on boards um, and I think if I had prior operations experience, and I think this is not like, you know, novel, novel, novel insight, but um, I would have had a lot more empathy, not to, I mean, I'm an empathetic person, but actually empathy for how hard it is to steer the ship, how much pressure there is when you're sitting on the other side of the boardroom table, having to deliver, having to prep for those board meetings, having to ultimately speak um, on behalf of the company. Um, and represent the company. Um, so I would say that like even more empathy, but also empathy for exactly how difficult it is and exactly the support structures that are needed to achieve the dream. Mm. And that's kind of maybe a good uh, full circle to what you're doing right now, which is like a subset of some of the advice you might've given to founder on yeah. a board or, or as an advisor, walk us through now in a little bit more detail, kind of where the origin of this idea came from and kind of exactly what it is that, that you would offer somebody if they said, hey, Evan, let's start working now. Like, how would somebody know yeah. that they're the right fit for you? So, so in terms of diversity of experience, I've spent the last three years uh, building a like a totally different type of a company, which is a, form a formerly family-owned and operated travel experiences brand. Um, that I was sort of the hired gun, right? The professional CEO, uh, because the founders uh, wanted to move on. Um, and that was kind of what I was brought in to do, really build out the leadership team, figure out the go like kind of a new go-to-market or a fine go-to-market and take the business to the next level. Um, that was all going to plan um, until 2020. Uh, this year, 
Uh, I've led uh, a restructuring and a pandemic era pivot to online experiences, which has been featured in the New York Times. It's been going really well. Um, but, 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 you know, it's yet another version of globally distributed operations that are also kind of people intensive, um, where you need to communicate um, a lot to a lot of di- different people, a very diverse set of stakeholders. So I guess what 2020 has been about for me, and it's been an extraordinary year, um, but, but what it's really caused me to realize is that growth companies on the right side of the digital transformation have never had more opportunity. I mean, the amount of capital that's flowing in. Um, I initially reached out about one of your portfolio companies because I just couldn't believe the speed at which a nine-figure sum of money had been invested in the company. (laughs) Um, So there's sort of more opportunity than ever to fulfill and to actualize your mission. At the same time, the internal operations, from what I've observed and through the entrepreneurs that I've spoken to, are more chaotic than ever. And the baseline, if you're a growth company, is a pretty high level of chaos. I mean, one fine say did not feel relaxed, and we were not operating uh, in a pandemic. Um, we were not a global. We were globally distributed, but we had HQ kind of centers. We weren't all sitting on our computers, nor would that even be feasible with our with our warehousing operation. So, so you have this like contrast. Um, of these countervailing forces, more opportunity than ever, um, and more internal chaos than ever. So my feeling, having observed all of this and having, I think, a tremendous amount of empathy for the founder journey, um, which has, again, been an inward journey uh, for me as well, but also a tremendous amount of diversity of experience. If you like, hearken all the way back to the Broadview days or the, or the Kenneth days, it's been 20 years supporting tech and growth companies. Um, And what I want to now bring to the world is sort of a support structure, right? And it's really really what a a PE firm uh, might call an operating partner. But, you know, traditionally VC funds uh, or even like mid-market growth equity funds don't really have like this operating partner structure. Um, But it's an operating partner for growth companies, one that really takes the mission and the goals, and chunks it all down into uh, a daily operating cadence and a daily operating strategy. All right, let's the go best- through that. First 100 yeah. days of an operator. You come in, first 100 days in a growth company, what does that look like? Well, I think it starts with speaking to the founders or the, or, or the leadership team about goals, right? So we can talk about mission, which is a bit of a vaguer version of a goal, um, but actually my belief uh, about mission statements is they all sound really good, but I think they need to be qualified down, like really specifically, like what does it mean for these various stakeholders? What, who is our target customer for this mission? Like a level of detail that mission statements often lack. And then you go from there to really understanding uh, the business uh, through the lens of, okay, what are the long range goals? Like now we start to get real. Okay. We're not talking about a hundred million bucks of revenue anymore because like that's kind of lame to put in a mission statement. Um, but when you start talking about five-year goals or, you know, three-year goals, suddenly it's like, oh no, what we want to do is we want to, we want to have a hundred million dollars of revenue. Right. So, so it's chunking it down to things that feel more and more digestible. And then ultimately getting to the point 
there's, there's an understanding about how the economics of the business work um, and an economics of what should be achieved over a cycle, over a uh, 12-month cycle or over a three-month cycle. And that is where um, OKRs or other goal frameworks, but I think OKRs is the best and I've, I've experienced with, with a lot of them, um, come into play. So it's like where strategy meets operations. Um, so, so I think once you get down to the point of having clarity, which I would, I, I'm, I'm assisting with that, that clarity of what we're hoping to achieve over the next 90 days or 360 days, you can then begin to bring the organization together and rally in kind of a new way um, around those goals with the strategic focus of the leadership team and the strategic focus of the of kind of the company of the company overall. Mm. And it's really OKR cycle implementation. But the challenge is, have you have you ever like do do any of your portfolio companies run OKRs? Yep. There's mixed so, there's mixed feelings on OKRs these days though. Sometimes yes. some people have a view that they can they can force people into operating within a slight remit that sometimes can end up working against uh, uh, being able to be more nimble, but maybe you can comment on that. I can. So I think, I think that, I think OKRs um, are not actually rigid, uh, but they're often interpreted rigidly. I think the challenge with OKRs, so, so it's, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the, um, it's like what they say about sort of capitalism. It's like the best system of government that we've come up with so far. Like it definitely has drawbacks, but for me, it's the best goal setting and alignment system for growth companies but by far. Um, but the challenge is the available literature that's out there, um, you know, the Google OKR playbook, Measure What Matters, John Doerr's book, are like quite actually like either rigid or a little too loose. So John Doerr in his book says, or maybe he says this on his blog, that of course you want to interpret this framework for yourself, right? And I think because everybody has a slightly different flavor of OKRs, it becomes almost like you know their own their own kind of religion. Um, and then everyone's so flat out running the day to day operations in a pandemic that it just sits on the sidelines collecting dust. So for me, what it's fundamentally about is what do we want to achieve, and how are we going to know if we achieved it? And it doesn't have to be this overstructured super heavy, cascaded down to individual OKRs level. I like to focus on company level goals and then aligning the organizational resources behind those goals in a way that creates kind of dialogue and collaboration that wasn't there previously and also really refines an understanding of what the KPIs are that we're really trying to drive. So, so I think it's deceptively simple um, and I think tends to get overcomplicated. And I think one of the reasons is there's a real limitation of um, models to follow um, with the existing OKR sort of literature and, and, and kind of media. Yeah. So it, sound, it sounds like your role is as a good arbiter of what's t- when, when it's gone too far and when it hasn't gone far enough, yeah. even if a lot of the frameworks are out there, open source, if you will. It, yeah, it's basically a, a series of best practices, yeah. um, as well as, and, and every organization is different. I mean, this is one of the reasons why OKR software is a little challenging, because they're giving you a process that may or may not be right for your company. Yeah. Um, 
it, it's kind of the ongoing refinement yeah. of the goal setting process, which is really where all of the uh, the value over time is created at growth companies. Yeah. Um, but but it's not a set it and forget it exercise. Um, yeah. Nor does it need to be uh, overburdensome, as you as as you say. Well, I mean that's that's super exciting, and and um, and it sounds like this is a really cool opportunity for anybody who's listening, who's in the growth stages of their business to, to reach out to you. And, and I don't know if you want to share any more details about the website. I know you shared it with yeah. me it's live right now. So maybe this is a chance to, to do a little bit more marketing. Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. It's called Okra Labs. O-K-R-A Labs. Um, when I was writing out uh, like whiteboarding various uh, names for the company, uh, I didn't realize how close OKRs were to Okra, and the system is also about the A's, so accountability, um, uh, alignments, and activation of mission. Um, and I also love Indian food and love Okra, so yeah, it was like, like a very great name, very natural. Thank you. <laughs> um, as I like to say uh, on my website, I love phone calls. Right, so it's I'm always happy to. In fact, I, I do it all the time already as part of my natural kind of course of, of life, um, getting on the phone with founders uh, or, or entrepreneurs um, and discussing OKRs or whatever's actually on their minds. Um, but yeah, so the website is Okra Labs. Uh, I outline the system that I've used um, on the website. Uh, I talk a little bit more about why I started the business, which is really this dearth um, of actionable advice by people who have been through it, um, the the sort of the hard yards earned as a growth company uh, founder, scaler, operator, exeter, hired gun CEO um, over the past decade, and yeah, I mean, I am ultimately looking to just collaborate with the next generation of growth companies. I think it's an incredibly exciting time, but it's an incredibly challenging time. And I actually think a lot of the skills that I've learned and the experience that I have can be good to really good use. Mm. Well, it sounds like it. And so that's why I wanted to take this opportunity, even though we were supposed to just catch up to, to have a chance for you to tell a story for, for an audience and for people to learn a little bit more about you. So with that, um, coming up on the 43 minute mark, and it's we could go on forever because I, I still haven't fully caught up with you, but at least for the listeners, if you want to learn more about it, go to Ochre Labs and uh, send a message to, to our good friend, Evan Frank. And it was a pleasure having you, Evan. And, you know, for now, until next time, guys. Bye. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you for all the hospitality. 